All right. Um, just to, before we even get started this morning, again, to reiterate, if there's anybody here that throughout the last few weeks has felt led to be baptized, um, as soon as we go into worship at the end of the service this morning, run over, grab a t-shirt, go get changed, come back in, and then we're going to do some baptisms today. This will be our fourth Sunday doing baptisms, and uh, it's been awesome. We've had, I, I, I want to say like maybe 14 or 15 people get baptized so far, um, and today I think we've got three or four. So if you're here, and this will be the last Sunday we set this up in here, and so if you'd like to be baptized this morning, yeah, go get changed during worship, and then uh, we'll make it happen. Or if you just want to jump in your clothes, it's all good, right? We're family here. You can do it however you want. Um, if you guys would turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 1, we're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday. This morning we'll be in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. If you say word when you get there. Nice. Okay, I'm going to read it, and then we're going to pray and get into it. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel, or the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. This word witnesses is actually a Greek word, martis. It's where we get the word martyr. And this word witnesses means to um, bear witness to your beliefs. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking, as they were looking on, he, lifted, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we just come before you this morning. We ask, uh, Lord, that you, by your spirit, would seal this time. Lord, we invite you in this place to have your way with us, God. I pray for each individual in this room, God, that you do the work of opening up our hearts, that um, our hearts will be softened, that we would honestly hear from you this morning, Jesus. I pray for all the distractions and the hustle and bustle of our life to just subside right now in the name of Jesus, that we could focus our time and our attention, our hearts, our minds, our souls on you this morning. And uh, Jesus, we ask again that you just have your way in this place. I thank you for each person here. God, we know it's not coincidence that they're here this morning, that you have a plan and a purpose for each life in this room. And I pray, Jesus, that you'd make yourself known in a very real way in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we started into the book of Acts, and our hope was kind of to stay in this storyline coming out of Matthew. We were in Matthew for two and a half years, um, and then coming out of Matthew, we thought we'd pick up in some of the resurrection stories of Jesus at the end of John and at the end of Luke to kind of wrap it up and then jump into the book of Acts. And so we jumped into the book of Acts and we're kind of looking at what happened after Jesus's resurrection. Like 
What's the connection in all these things? And so, anyway, we thought it would be kind of helpful for us to jump into the book of Acts so we could see what happened after Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. And then also what that means for you and I today. Because as we get into the book of Acts, now we see this Holy Spirit comes. And then we, we see the church arise. And, and, and now we are like partakers in this Holy Spirit, but also in the church that's starting here in the book of Acts. Last week we, start, we ended in verses uh, 4 and 5 where Jesus tells his disciples to go to Jerusalem. He says, go there, wait for the promise of the Father. And Jesus says that John baptized with water, John the Baptist baptized with water. Uh, and, and this was John's baptism, was this baptism of water, right? This baptism for repentance. To baptize means to dip, it means to immerse in something. And so John's baptism was one of repentance. And we also know that John was the fulfillment of this prophecy that he came announcing that this, this whole message of repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And that John the Baptist was actually the one spoken of by the, uh, the prophet Isaiah when he said that there would come one that was a voice of one calling in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord to make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist was this one that came to foreshadow Jesus, to prepare the way for Christ. And he was baptizing people, but he was baptizing them uh, in repentance. And then Jesus would come and Jesus would actually baptize them in the spirit uh, and in fire. And Acts 1.5 says, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So we're like 40 days in, about 10 days away from the, the, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would fall upon this room and tongues of fire would descend upon all these people. And we're going to literally practice that in a couple weeks, all right? Um, <laughs> you're like, oh gosh, I gotta, I'm squirming. I got to get out of here. Um, but last week we talked about, too, the fact that uh, for those of you that grew up like maybe in more charismatic circles or those of you that grew up in maybe more conservative circles, like our goal is to find Jesus in the middle of all of this. I mean, I, I, I grew up in the Pentecostal church. I went to uh, Pentecostal Bible College. Um, I've been around it. I've seen it. I've watched it, the, the gifts of the Spirit and the way the Spirit's talked about and the way we use the Holy Spirit, sort of like this vending machine. I've watched it be taken advantage of. But I've also realized that in my own life, and I mentioned this last week, that now 43 years in, that you've seen things abused so much and you've felt so much hurt and pain yourself over years of things that have happened and things that you've seen, that you become like this closet sort of um, cessationist. And a cessationist is somebody who believes that the spirit ceased after basically the first century church. So that was for then and today, the, the spirit does not function in the same way that the spirit did prior. So, um, I say all that to say, as we get into the book of Acts, my prayer for us as a church has really been that, that Jesus would stir something up in us, that the Holy Spirit would ignite something in us, that those of us who are jaded, those of us who are fearful of actually taking steps of faith and allowing the Spirit to lead us, um, and, and even into like some miraculous things, into some things that we can't explain or don't understand, that we would be a church that would be led by His Spirit wherever it is that, that the Lord takes us, Amen. So, um, that, that's that. So that's kind of the setup. But one of the things I wanted to kind of frame for you this morning before we even get into this text is that oftentimes I'm asked by people uh, at, from, from Christians this question of like, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as a community of faith, how do we know that what we do actually matters? 
how do we know that there's impact in, in what we're doing? Like, how do we know that the work that we're doing, that the thing that God has, has called us into, the church, how do we know that this story that we're all participating in, that this thing called being the church, that it actually matters, that it's actually, like, paying dividends forward, that it's actually of benefit? How do we know that following Jesus, the way he's called us to, genuinely matters in our lives? And it's easy for us to sort of doubt these things, right? Sometimes we try to kind of practice these peculiar things that God calls us into, and we experience like serious resistance in our life when we step out into these things. So we, we try and proclaim and live this like good news of the kingdom. Like we want to step into it. And we, what we often face is this resistance, right? Like people don't want it, or we don't see results from it, or there's no change around us. And sometimes we can wonder, like, well, is that the best way to go about this, right? Or, or, can, or, or we can be faced with this reality of maybe a lot of bills, a lot of debts in your life, or just family dreams and hopes and goals and expectations that you have, and those goals and those expectations and those dreams run right into the reality of Jesus saying things, telling you to value things differently, or, or Jesus asking you to practice giving up power in your life. And, and we can decide that maybe we're actually not all that interested in these things at all because I haven't seen the rewards from any of them. Or we can find ourselves distracted by other ways to change the world. I mean, honestly, in the last few years, I've seen that in believers so often, right? I feel like there's a ton of options on the table for us on ways that we can impact the world, ways that we can change the world. And oftentimes, the other ways that we kind of step into that we want to try to change the world actually feel more effective than just like relying on Jesus, like by his power to be led by him. And so in light of that, uh, uh, all these other ways that we can change the world, like these other things we can step into outside of our Christian faith, like we can decide that, that these practices that Jesus has given us and these ways that he's called us in this life can actually be insignificant, that they're ineffective, that they're inadequate. Like we begin to live as though Jesus himself lacks power, and so we're going to rely on the things that we know to actually try to change the world, to get the job done ourselves. And I have a bit of a confession to make to you guys this morning in the sense that I'm this person that I'm very easily distracted in life. Anybody else with me? Like super distracted, very easily. Um, in the last few years, I'm super distracted by just our current events in our country and in our world. I'm distracted by political sides. I get distracted by the, I'm immersed in podcasts. Like, I'm always interested in what the sides are saying, especially in moments like we find ourselves now. I love watching the news. I love listening to podcasts. And so, so very quickly, I can become really distracted by all of these things that are happening around me. And so very easily, we can sort of have our faith sort of co-opted or absorbed by politics. Meaning that all of a sudden, I believe the best way to do this thing called being the church is to actually do it politically. To remove the power from Jesus himself and to step into politics as though that's the power that Jesus is going to use to bring change to the world. 
And so we believe that it's the, the power lies in a party, maybe, or, or through the practices that we see engaged in a party, or the use of power that we see engaged in political spheres. And so, like, for me, it's so easy to get distracted and so easy to be absorbed by these things and begin to think that it's actually the way that we change the world, is all these other things, because I don't see the things happening that Jesus is doing, so I step into the things that I know and begin to rely on these things to bring change to the world because I might be able to see some sort of instantaneous shift. And what we do is we end up totally disregarding the power behind gathering around the table as believers, breaking bread with one another, proclaiming the story of Jesus, practicing submission to Jesus and Jesus alone in our lives. And maybe these things are not as pretty, they're not as sexy, maybe they're not as effective, maybe we don't think they're as powerful, maybe it doesn't matter as much to us, but the good news for us is that we're not alone. If, if you're asking any of these questions before, like, is the stuff that I'm doing actually bringing change? Is it actually effective? We're not alone in these questions. People of God have always been wondering whether or not the thing that God has called them into is effective or the thing that God has called them into actually matters or whether it actually is shaping the world around them. They, they've constantly been asking these questions. I mean, ancient Israel would often ask God why he gave them strange teachings, right? Like if you've, if you've ever read, read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, it's weird, right? There's some strange stuff in there. Israel thought it was weird also. Like, we're not unique in wondering, like, why, why do we have to do these things? Where's the power behind them? Israel had to ask these questions. The, the other nations, Israel would wonder, like, well, why do the other nations get to practice life differently than we do? Why can't we be like them? Why can't we have politics like them? Why can't we have a kingdom like them? Why can't we wage war like them? Why can't we do slavery like them? Why can't our economy be built on the same kind of principles and structures as the world around us? Why do we have to be strange? Why do we have to be weird, different, set apart? Why do we always have to go against the grain? And you think Maybe that that would disappear with the followers of Jesus who are actually hanging out with Jesus. That over time, the ones who are with Jesus would stop asking those questions. But constantly the disciples are asking Jesus the exact same question. Like, Jesus, why do you say such weird things, right? Like when Jesus is like, hey, everybody, if you want to be my follower, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. Peter, pulled, Peter sort of pulls him aside, and he's like, man, that's weird stuff, right? <laughs> Jesus, I think there's a different way to phrase that. Like, that does not make sense to anybody else. Like, stop telling people to eat you, you know? Like, that just is weird. Sometimes they don't understand it. Sometimes they ask why. And other times, like when Jesus says that he has to die on the cross to fulfill the mission that God has given him, Peter doesn't ask why. He says, no. He actually says, Jesus, no, that's not the way you're going to build your kingdom, Jesus. 
And then all throughout Scripture, the people of Jesus are asking, why do we have to do it this way? The, the Apostle Paul says that the ways and the beliefs of the church are so weird that it actually looks like foolishness to the rest of the world. He even says that it smells like death to some people. So how do we know that what we're doing, what we're a part of, actually matters? And I think that these kinds of questions that, that Luke is setting out to answer as he's like writing this books, these books, he writes the Gospel of Luke, right? The, the story of Jesus. He writes this book of Acts, the story of the early church. And in his writings, he's kind of addressing, he's trying to answer some of these hard questions. Like, why do you do the things that you're doing? Your Messiah, he was crucified. Why do you continue to do the thing that you're doing? Your followers, they're, they're being martyred. Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you sell your property and then begin to share everything that you sell with one another. Like, that's just straight up weird. Why do you do those things? And Luke steps into some of these questions. And so Luke sort of sets out to tell the story to say, like, okay, here's why we do the things we do. Here's how they report it. Here's how they understand it. And he begins his book about the story of the church with another story where the disciples are asking a similar set of questions as you and I wrestle with about why Jesus does the things that he does and how they should understand their own work within that. And so if you look at Acts 1-6, the disciples ask Jesus this question. They say, so, so, so when they come together, they, they come together, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's the question they ask Jesus. Is it time, Jesus? And this is like the question for the disciples. It's the question, actually, for the nation of Israel because they understand that this thing that God is doing in, in national and in political terms for them, Jesus is about restoring the hope of Israel, restoring the nation of Israel, building the kingdom of God, and hopefully it will happen through the people of Israel. And so they want that to happen in a really political, really national way. They want to overcome Rome. They want to kick Rome's butt, who was the, this current like powerhouse that was really oppressing God's people. They want Jesus to come in and be that dominant power. And so they ask, like, Lord, will you at this time do the thing that we hoped you would do? Is it now? Will you do this? You talked about the kingdom, right, Jesus? Like, is it going to happen? Are you going to do this? And in the beginning, like right before this moment in verse 6, it says that Jesus was with them telling them the story of the kingdom. So they had heard this story of the kingdom. He's talked about it in Luke. He's talked about it when he was with them. And so they're hoping that like, God, is this the moment when you're going to restore the kingdom? Is this the moment that it's going to happen? Is this what makes our work matter, is what they're saying. Everything we've sacrificed and given up, is this what makes it all worth it? Are you going to do it right now, Jesus? Like the things that we did with you, the life that we've committed to you, are you going to make all of those things that we do matter now? And Jesus, when will you do it? Jesus, will it be soon? Like, is it going to happen tomorrow? Now, on the one hand, I think this is the right question for them to ask. Like, it totally makes sense. 
We, we know that Jesus has been on a mission. We've talked about this over the last couple of years, that Jesus is about restoring the kingdom, that he's calling us to participate in that work with him. And so that's the right kind of question. The temptation, though, is that our allegiance to Jesus would become dependent on, on, on Jesus doing what we want when we want it, right? That's the temptation. We want you to do what you said you would do, Jesus, in my time and in my way. And that's why they're asking this question. You and I, we rarely talk about it like this boldly, but so often our faith becomes dependent upon some kind of promise or some kind of hope, some kind of expectation that's close to Jesus, like it's right there. And so, so then we measure whether our faith matters or whether the work that we do matters in light of this hope or that expectation or that promise. Like, I can't tell you how many times in, in my 20-some years of serving Jesus um, and being in part of his church that I've literally watched people leave the church because they felt like some expectation of theirs wasn't met. I'm bouncing. It just did not meet my expectation. That people come and they're like hoping to get married, right? That's their hope. I, I, I want to find a wife. I want to find a husband. They, they hope that, that getting married is going to lead to some kind of life. And so they get married and then it leads to some kind of life, right? And, and it wasn't the life that they expected necessarily. And so they get, to, they get disappointed. And then often this disappointment in their marriage leads to disappointment in the thing that you begin to blame for your marriage, which ends up being the church. It's the church's fault. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. And then eventually you continue to pull that thread, and it goes all the way to Jesus. And so you say that Jesus has failed, or, 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 or you're disappointed in him, and, and maybe it wasn't true at all because your hope was actually stored in some promise that was really close to Jesus, but not actually in Jesus, right? Some expectation that was maybe very near to Jesus, maybe connected to Jesus, but not actually Jesus. And in the case of the disciples, their hope is actually in something that Jesus did promise to do, right? But it's rooted in when Jesus does it, which is so interesting. And the problem is, as Jesus says in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or the season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. I'm king, you're not. <laughs> It'll happen in my time frame, right? Because those kind of hopes, those kinds of promises, these kinds of expectations, they're impossible to get your hands around. We, we can't see them. We can't quantify them. You can't hope in when or what because every time you pursue when and what, every time you put your hope in them, they always seem distant and it always seems out of reach like you just can't get to it. And that doesn't mean that we're not motivated by the things that Jesus is accomplishing. Like, don't get me wrong. We are. But we live in a very real tension as followers of Jesus. We believe that his kingdom is coming and yet it's not totally here. That's what we believe. We believe that it was begun in Jesus, but that it's not 
100% complete. We believe that we're called to participate in it and to join in on the work, but not fully. And if we put our hope in saying that we will be the full extension of the kingdom of Jesus, we will constantly be disappointed in our work. And either we'll carry the weight of that or, or Jesus will end up carrying the weight of that. But we will believe that someone else has failed us. And so we're motivated by the things that Jesus is doing. But we live in this tension. We don't know when he's fixed these times or when he's accomplishing his purposes. And so the when cannot be where our hope rests. It just can't. We can't put our hope in the when and hoping to figure that out. We don't know how long we may suffer on this earth. We don't know how long we may wrestle. We don't know how long we will participate in the work that God is doing. We don't know how long. And so we can't put our hope in the when. And so what do we do now in light of this? What do we know? And I love this moment in the book of Acts because Jesus doesn't really answer the question, right? Instead, he shows them. Like, look at verse 9. It says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Like, I absolutely love this moment, right? Because it's like Jesus was just asked this really hard question, and instead of answering it, he's like, mm, bye-bye. You know, like... <laughs> Not for you to know the, the times or the seasons. Later, you know, I'll see you guys on the other side. But this moment, honestly, which for you and I is kind of a strange moment. We're like, what in the world is Jesus doing? They ask this hard question and then he bounces? Like, where's he going? But for the people that were witnessing this, you have to understand, you have to step into their shoes for a second. You have to understand, like, the immediate reference that these people would have had, the people who are watching it. We're disconnected because we're 2,000 years on the other side of this whole thing, so it's hard for us to understand what they were thinking. We're not super familiar with the Old Testament, but for the people who are watching this moment, it has this immediate impact because it dates back to a pretty famous story in the history of Israel. The Old Testament prophet Daniel who lives in exile in Babylon, he sees this vision and hears this. And the vision starts out super weird, right? So I want to give you a little bit of context for it. It's in Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel's seeing this vision, and it starts out like this. He says, I saw my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and out of that sea came four beasts different from one another. So Daniel sees this, like these four beasts rise out of the sea, and he's dreaming this vision, and it's weird. And actually, Daniel doesn't understand it at first, and so he has to have some help interpreting this. And so what he learns immediately is that these four beasts represent these empires of the world. And so he lives in this great empire, Babylon. Babylon will often metaphorically be the, the constant enemy of God's kingdom, like all throughout the biblical story. So even when Babylon is gone, we still use Babylon as a metaphor to talk about the, the, this thing that is against Jesus, like Babylon is against Jesus. And so even when Babylon is gone, we still use that. So he's in the empire, Daniel's in this empire, these four beasts 
They ravaged the world, and so he's like, I understand that. Like, the, this beast that I live in is literally ravaging the world, Babylon, right? It's taking advantage of the communities around us. It, it's, it's literally, it's seeking violence in order to hoard control, in order to try to acquire more power. And specifically, he sees this vision of these four beasts that are ravaging what it says was, one like the Son of Man. I want you to hear this, this prophetic connection here. The, the Son of Man, this phrase, has this really interesting connotation, right? Sometimes it refers to Israel, but as you come into the story of Jesus, the Son of Man becomes Jesus' favorite title for himself. <laughs> Jesus loves to talk about himself as the Son of Man, and so in this moment, we, we see one like the Son of Man who's being ravaged by the beast, but then Daniel sees the beast overthrown and their power taken away from them, and God sets up a throne, and then he sees this. And I want you to hear this. If you haven't listened to anything else I've said this morning, listen to this. And Daniel says this, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to God and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And I want you to lock that image in your head. So Daniel sees this vision, one like the Son of Man, comes with the clouds. And now fast forward to the Gospels, and you have this character, Jesus, who, who loves to apply to himself this name of this, this phrase, the reference, the Son of Man. And he goes about proclaiming the good news of what? The good news of what? What does Jesus proclaim? The good news of what? The kingdom. And Jesus literally does it so much, he does it so radically that a beast, Rome, literally consumes Jesus. It ravages Jesus because they can't handle the message that Jesus is proclaiming, the story that he's telling. But then in, in like kind of the greatest reversal of all time, right? Jesus, the son of man, is resurrected. And then in the book of Acts, in, in Acts 1, he's taken up into the clouds where what happens? What happens next? Jesus is seated on the throne as the king of the universe. He takes his ultimate seat of authority and power. And Luke begins his story of the church in the book of Acts with this moment. Why? Because we may not know when God's kingdom is actually going to be accomplished in its totality, but we do know that we're currently the people of the present sitting under the reign and the rule of King Jesus, aren't we? This king who was crucified in love. Right? The, the, this king who overcame sin and death. The, this king who now sits on his throne in authority over the entire world. And sometimes I actually think we miss this moment in the story of the gospel. Like this ascension moment. Like we miss telling this part, but it's so vital to our lives, you guys. It's so vital. It's something that we need in order to answer the question, does what we do actually matter? Is there some substance or, or hope to the present work that you and I are engaged in? It doesn't matter. 
And think about the way that you often tell the gospel. I was thinking about this this week. Like when we hear the word gospel and we talk about sharing that with people, what are the pieces that we share when it comes to sharing the gospel with our family and friends? What are like the essential pieces? It's, it's the story of the kingdom of Jesus, right? But what are the pieces? Jesus took on flesh. And, and then you've got crucifixion. And, and Jesus bears the sins of the world on his body. He, he was crucified on this cross. He literally absorbed sin and death into himself. He took it upon himself for us. And then you've got resurrection. Then, fast forward, you've got Pentecost, which we don't talk a lot about and we'll talk about in a couple weeks. When God's presence literally comes to empower the community of faith. Like, what an amazing thing. And we believe that we're reconciled to God, right? Reconciled to God, we're reconciled to one another, that we have hope that Jesus is actually going to finish his work, that he's going to actually restore the world to himself. And these are good. Like, these are all the right pieces. But there's something that often is missing from the story when we tell it. If you look at all of these pieces, all of these pieces are past, right? Incarnation, past. Crucifixion, past. Resurrection, past. Pentecost, past. Reconciliation, past. But is there any present hope for you and I right now? Is there like this present reality? Is there anything that we presently live into as the church? And I think that the story of the gospel that we so often tell, it actually leaves us with very little right here and now because we talk about the past work that Jesus did. It's sort of like I feel like we're constantly just like flipping the page and sometimes wondering what part of the story are we in right now? And so I think like no, no wonder that we ask the question, why does it matter? No wonder we ask, where's our present power or our present hope or our present comfort? Because we don't tell a story that often includes this present tense reality to the gospel, the ascension. That in this moment, that Jesus literally is king right now, currently. It's not a past thing. Jesus is king now. And so I think whether our hope and our beliefs are are like past tense or present tense, whether we're just waiting for something to come in the future or whether we're living into something right here and right now, Anthem CDA is a people of Jesus. We actually live into a new reality here. And now that's what makes us the church. What we do actually matters because Jesus is seated on the throne. It's the only thing that makes sense of any of this. Why would we gather here today if he wasn't seated on the throne? Why would we practice spiritual disciplines in our life if he wasn't the king? Why would we try to live differently? Like as you, as you read through the story of the book of Acts, why would you have Stephen who was martyred or Paul who literally ends up, he ends this story in chains and shackles in a prison? Why would any of that make sense unless we currently believe that there was a new current king on the throne declaring a whole new reality for those that are under his power? And that's the only thing that makes sense of what we actually do today, that we are living in obedience 
to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. N.T. Wright says this, that the whole book of Acts is the story of how Jesus, exercising his power as the CEO of earth, as of heaven, sends out his followers as ambassadors to make his kingdom a reality. So the current king sends out his ambassadors. That's you and I. So I want you to ask yourself this morning, what does this mean? Like, in all honesty, what does it mean that Jesus is king now? Not then, not later, but that Jesus is king now. What does it mean that Jesus is king right now for you? How does Jesus' present kingship now actually change your world that you live in? And if you don't have an answer for that question, you've probably never thought about it. But if Jesus is presently king, if that's your politics, it changes everything, doesn't it? It changes everything. We don't get lost in the sideshows because we know who's king of kings and lord of lords. We don't get distracted with like, does this actually matter because we're serving the one who sits on the throne. Like what you do with your money, how you organize your family, how you think about allegiance, how you think about American politics, how you think about your love for your neighbor, how you think about how you share your faith, how you think about what you're even proclaiming. Like everything's changed. And so how does this present kingship of Jesus actually change the world? And so maybe ask yourself, if I believe that Jesus is presently king right now, what tension will that lead to in my life right now? What tension does that cause in your life right now? We're a people that are called to proclaim that Jesus is king and not the other kings of this world, right? That means Rome is in the past. That means America now. Like, it doesn't matter. That means our own hearts, our own minds, whatever else it is that you value. And so what kind of tension will the kingship of Jesus challenge in your life or cause in your life? Jesus says in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What does that mean? That means that the spirit of the living God that resides in you and I actually is at work in us as we become proclaimers of that kingdom and the King Jesus that we serve that we will be his witnesses throughout all of the world. How's the gospel go from little old Coeur d'Alene, like in the Boys and Girls Club right now in 2022 to the rest of the world? It happens by the 400 people in this room that begin to proclaim the kingship of Jesus and his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? So, I'll end with this, verse 9. He says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. My question for you this morning, 
Is there any chance that you and I, this morning, right now, are busy looking into the sky and wasting our life away? Getting caught up in all the tertiary things that really don't matter. Like, if the disciples only cared about the fact that Jesus was going to be seated on the throne and that he was in control regardless of time, would they have asked that question? <laughs> but instead, they're like, when's it going to happen? It's going to happen now? I mean, to be honest with you, how many in the church today are like, Jesus is coming back in March of, you know, 2024 on this date? And it's like, come on. You know, like we, it is not for us to spend our lives to try to get lost in these tertiary things, to try to figure it out ourselves, to plan the dates and the times for it all to happen. What is on us is that the Holy Spirit has come upon you and I to make us witnesses to the ends of the earth, that we will take this message to the ends of the earth, no matter how many days God gives us on this planet, right? But how many of us spend our lives looking up into the sky, literally just waiting? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of post up and wait for Jesus to come back. Forget this life. None of it really matters because Jesus is eventually coming back. And so I'm just going to like hole up in my house, wait for Jesus to come back, wait for him to put an end to this horrid life that I've been given on this earth so that I can finally be at peace and at home with him in eternity. Like, what a horrible life that makes for us here on this planet. When Jesus has empowered you, he's called you to be a witness, somebody who testifies, and you cannot be a witness if you stand still. How can you be a witness to anything if you're just somebody that stands idly by? So many people want Jesus to return in their lifetime so that he's going to solve their problem, right? But the reality is that the spiritual blessing that Jesus brings is far more important than the physical blessing that he can bring us. So what are the things in your life what are the things in your life that you spend your time kind of wasting away at without giving priority to the main thing? And as a church, man, I, I can't get into the book of Acts and talk about the Holy Spirit without saying, man, his church should be on fire. His church should be on fire. Like praying, worshiping, like seeking Jesus should be our end on this earth. Like we want to live our lives in such a way that we propel him, right? Make much of Jesus, not much of my life, like my job, my career, my things, acquiring my wealth and building my kingdom. I actually want to point others to Jesus. I want to steward what he's given me in such a way that I'm actually pointing people to Christ with the way that I live my life, with the messages that I speak, what I proclaim, what is it that you're saying? Whether that be in word or in deed, what is your, your life communicating to the rest of the world? Who's king? Is it you or is it Jesus? And if it's Jesus, how does Jesus bring all these things that we wrestle with in our life into tension? So much so that we, we would feel the tension of how do I steward my life? How do I steward my relationships? How do I steward the mouth that he's given me to proclaim the message that he's called and sent me? Years ago, I'll ask the, the worship team to come up. Years ago, I was um, traveling on this, this uh, skateboard tour, and there was a really, really famous skateboarder 
from the 80s and 90s that we were with um, on this stint of our tour. This guy in the 90s uh, got busted for drugs, spent like 10 years in prison, um, and we kind of connected with him right when he got out of prison. He's like a legend. And he was on fire for Jesus. I mean, like, we were on this leg of the tour, and we would go into a Starbucks, and we'd be standing there paying for our drinks, and he'd be like, do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? The girl's like, what? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Do you know what this life is about? Do you know that God has a call and a, a plan and a purpose for your life? Like, do you want the forgiveness of your sins? Like, he just is preaching the gospel over the, everywhere we went, this was happening. And I remember thinking at that point in my life, like, that's good for him, but that's just not me. And then I read passages like this, and I think, like, what was one of the primary purposes of his spirit? To empower us to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. How are we living our life in such a way now that we are actually aiding in that work? Would you guys stand with me? Bow your heads. Let me pray for you this morning. Jesus, I want to thank you uh, for your spirit. Thank you, God, for the work that you're doing in so many lives, God. I can stand up on the stage and just see faces and know backstory in people's lives and know where you're stepping in and the things that you're doing. And I thank you for that, Jesus. But I pray that that work would just increase, God. That you continue to use your people to do your work, God. That we would be a people continuing to submit and surrender our lives to you. To seek your will to be done, Jesus. For those of us in this room who just struggle, maybe with some of these questions of like, does this matter? Does church matter? Does being a Christian matter? And yet, Jesus, I, I know it matters if you are king on the throne. That regardless of what I see or don't see or when it does or doesn't happen, I can trust in that, Jesus, that you've ascended, that you're seated at the right hand of the Father, that you've taken your place as king of the entire world, the whole universe. And I pray, Jesus, that we would have an awakening like that in our hearts to who you are, just the vastness, God, the the grandness of who you are, Jesus. Forgive us, God, for so often minimizing that, for so often making our lives about us, for so often clinging on to the tertiary things, hoping that those things are going to bring some immediate relief or some immediate change that we aren't seeing elsewhere. And so we sell out to those things. And I pray, Jesus, that there be kind of a coming home for people in this room. Open our eyes and our hearts, some of us to see you for the first time for who you are, others of us to be awakened and reminded of who you are once again, Jesus. And may your spirit just be at work in this church and in these people. God, I pray as we leave these four walls this morning, 
that we would be the witnesses, that proclamation would come from our lips and from our lives, that we would be pointing and leading other people to you, Jesus, and boasting of your greatness, honoring and worshiping you in all facets of our life, even down to the fine little minute things. And Jesus, this morning, I'm just praying for those in this room that are suffering severe hardship and they're going through things in their life that they can't make sense of. They've wrestled with you. They've gone back and forth, God. They've doubted whether or not you exist because of these significant things that they're going through in their life. And yet this morning, God, I just pray for a glimpse of hope for them to be reminded, Jesus, that though life is hard and there's some difficult situations ahead, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, that you are seated on the throne, God, that you know all and you see all, that you are with them and you know them down to the very makeup of their bodies, Jesus. And I pray this morning that they just be supernaturally infused with your hope. Give it to them, Jesus. Encourage them. Fill them with your joy and your peace by way of your spirit. And Jesus, may we be a church on fire for you 